0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping, storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states.
0: You hear the call, you know so well.
1: Sisters, speak out.
0: here and welcome to season six of the 50 Feminist Dates podcast. This is another mini season coming at you while we're sort of on hiatus due to COVID-19. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. This is a journey through all 50 of the U.S. states, hopefully eventually its territories and protectorates as well, to talk to feminist activists and artists about the work that they're doing in their communities and nation and worldwide for gender justice. So far, we visited 33 states, a few of which were only digital journeys due to the most recent road trip being uh, canceled Due to COVID-19 and order to protect the safety of the communities we're visiting, the activists and artists we interview and myself, Amelia, the host and producer of this podcast. But. Luckily, over the spring and summer, I had the opportunity to do a few interviews with people who found the podcast and wanted to be a part of it. And when I heard their stories, I felt like all of you should hear them as well, even if I couldn't travel to speak with them in person. So this season six, mini season coming at you during hiatus, whatever we might say about it, is a really special one. And I'm so excited about the conversations that I have to share with all of you tuning in. Today's episode features Susanna Barkataki. She is an Indian yoga practitioner in the Shankarachara tradition. She's also the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute and runs Ignite Be Well 200 and 500 hour yoga teacher training programs. She's a speaker, a teacher, an author, and a yoga culture advocate working as a yoga unity activist. Our conversation was so enriching. We talked about decolonizing yoga on so many different levels. We discussed race, gender, cultural identity, the ways that cultural practices are appropriated by white supremacy and imperial cultures. We talk about how it feels to be belittled for your culture and then see it painted on billboards with white bodies taking your place. We talk about the ways that yoga has been and can be a feminist practice, but also the many, many failures of yoga in the West and the ways that it upholds oppression of so many different bodies. Yet, even through all of that, we hold on to, and Susanna shares with us how yoga has helped her decolonize herself, learn to love her identity, and become liberated. If you're a yoga practitioner yourself, I think you're going to love this episode. And even if you're not, there's still so much to learn here. I haven't practiced yoga in years, and I took away so much from our my conversation with Susanna, thinking about identity culture, race, gender, embodiment, even spiritual and artistic practices. It's all in this episode. And Susanna is such an eloquent speaker and teacher. I love talking to people when I know that they've thought through their story and are here to share it with us. And that's exactly how this episode felt to me. Just like a great conversation with someone who has so much to share and from whom I have so much to learn. In the show notes, you'll find links to go follow Susanna on Instagram and her website. I highly suggest giving her an Instagram follow. I love all of the decolonial yoga content that she's got going on there. You can also follow 50 Feminist States on Instagram, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you learned something from an episode of this podcast or listen to a bunch of them and always look forward to more, I'd like to invite you to make a donation on our Glow FM page. You'll also find that in the show notes. Those donations help keep the podcast online. And in the future, they're going to help fund fellowship for new podcasters, particularly women, gender nonconforming, non-binary folks, BIPOC, POC, amateur podcasters who want to learn the craft. I'll share more about that at the close of this season. But for now, let's dive right into this conversation. Here's Susanna.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Susanna Barkataki, and I am on unceded seminal land in Orlando, Florida. And I um, moved here about five years ago via Los Angeles, where I grew up. And from before that, I was in England in the UK. So I'm from a lot of places, but right now in Orlando.
0: And so I mean, I want to hear about that entire journey over time, but let um, me go back to the beginning. On your website, I was reading about how you've been doing yoga for as long as you can remember. Could you share maybe one of your earliest memories of yoga and how that practice began for you? Yeah. You know, growing up,
1: I have an Indian father and a British mother, and I was raised with a lot of my father's culture and practices, and um, my extended family in the US is Bengali and Assamese, which are two regions in Northeast India, um, really rich cultural um, and artistic parts of the world. And actually, interestingly, we can talk about this later, but uh, places where, especially in Assam, where there's uh, matriarchy, where um, the women rule. And, and it was interesting to find in my family life, my aunt, who really was the one who brought us as immigrants into the United States, she guided my whole life and all of our family's life really with yogic values. And so just little things like how we would respond to a conflict or to a bully or something going on at school. And she would bring up the value of ahimsa, of nonviolence, and Mm -hmm. or of satya, of truth, which are two fundamental pillars of Yoga philosophy and yoga practice. So my daily life was infused with yoga. But I remember being really young, maybe four or five, and not being able to fall asleep. You know, sometimes as a kid, like something happened, I was really excited, laying in bed, and my dad came in and he would sing me Asami's songs, Assamese lullabies. But he would also do guided meditations. So he had would have me visualize a blue ball of light above my head, above the um, Ajna chakra, the third eye, and then imagine my whole body being suffused with this relaxing blue light. And so that, which is a a visualization practice, a dharana practice, a practice of focus and mindfulness, was, you know, an early yogic practice that I didn't know, you know, when I was four or five that I was practicing yoga, but it was a tool and something I used for the rest of my life. Up until now,
0: I use that if I can't fall asleep. Oh, I love that so much. This image of just like you as a kid being excited, like you said, and having trouble falling asleep and having that that meditation. That's beautiful. Yeah. Could you maybe paint a brief, I'm sure this is a long story, but um, giving us some cliff notes about what led from from those moments in your childhood being imbued with Yogic philosophy to now yoga becoming, you know, your professional life, career, passion. I'm not quite sure how you'd describe <laughs> it, but all of those things, I think. Right. I think of
1: myself as a, a yoga unity activist and that yeah. activism takes many different forms.
0: I, it's <laughs> I love that. So, so yes, tell us about um, that journey and then what being a yoga unity activist means to you,
1: please. You know, my whole life, really was kind of predicated on separation right on Mm. uh, when I was born or actually even before I was born my parents were told not to marry Uh, they couldn't find anyone to marry them and there was a lot of violence against Indians in the UK a lot of a lot of tension and and discrimination but they chose to marry anyway and then even though they were told they would have half-breeds they chose to have children and I was their first child and So I came into the world already, you know, uh, already kind of like embattled, right, already facing a lot of trauma and separation and disintegration. And so, so much of my life, I had to struggle to address that and try to find a way to reconcile it within myself and make sense you know, of these forces that had shaped me and, and who I was, but that to some extent were beyond me and then also were inside me, you know, and so for me, yoga, understanding and practicing the indigenous practices, yoga and Ayurveda that came from my culture that I was being made fun of for, you know, in, in England, but also in the U.S. and L.A. where I grew up, I was mocked or ridiculed, had to fight, you know, boys every day on the block that I grew up on, physically fight. So all of this was happening, kind of attacking me in my identity, both as a young woman, as a girl, and also as a brown girl. And then even more specifically as an Indian girl, you know, hearing things like go home or go work in your 7-Eleven or later, um, terrorist, you know, those were the types of attacks levied against me all the time. And so Instead of, you know, and I had a lot of internalized uh, inferiority, internalized depression, Like so many of us, I think we, we can, and sometimes we like fight outside, but it still goes in, you know, in, internally. And so I, I was doing both. I was fighting, you know, and trying to defend myself, but also internally was beginning to believe in my own inferiority. And so in probably around... Uh, end of high school, while I was in college, I had this amazing collective of anti-racist activists, you know, queer feminist colleagues and friends who we really were just supporting each other and reminding each other of who we were and you know, giving each other places to stay when people were getting kicked out of their houses for being queer and all all those types of things. And so one of our practices was to affirm one another in our own, you know, places of power. And so it was really through that group of friends, uh, but it was just an ad hoc group. We just came together, you know, and, and supported one another. And they were like, Hey, you know, why don't you study the practices that, that come from your your heritage, you know, even though these were the things I had been mocked for or made fun of for in the past. And I'm so grateful that I had that community to reaffirm for me, you know, who I, I was. Um, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need that, you know, we need other people to lift us up. And so I began studying yoga and Ayurveda as both a tool of like self autonomy, you know, and, and believing in myself and where I came from. But it really became the pathway to finding that unity uh, within and then creating it outside of me because yoga really is a codified, developed, organized system of um, so personal and social change. And so that's how I came to see it, you know, what I was doing as being a yoga unity activist.
0: Oh, that's such a powerful... A story. And I think it really connected to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is this beautiful line in your bio where you say yoga helped me decolonize and love myself. Um, Could you maybe share a little bit about how you see yoga as this tool for decolonization and and self-love in your life? I think it obviously must relate to being a yoga unity activist, but I'd love to hear a little more about that decolonization part, if you can unpack that for us.
1: Absolutely. You know, so many of the things that I was facing that I thought were just me and I think this happens to us when we're impacted by any systemic oppression you know whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy or you know heteronormativity is like I felt like it was me like I was the one that was wrong I had done something I wasn't good enough you know my skin wasn't light enough my um you know just my whole way of being wasn't right and and so in opposition to that and resistance to that, I started to understand that actually, there was a history to this, that yogis and yoga practice and Ayurveda and Ayurvedic practice had been, you know, downgraded, had been called fringe, had been um, dismissed by the colonial ruling power in India. And so, my family, for example, didn't even know a lot of their own history, even though they grew up after India was free of British rule. Uh, the lessons they were taught in Indian schools in India were lessons about British, you know, military feats, British accomplishments. And so, just understanding that how deep these kinds of um, dislike dislocating us from our place of power our history our stories our senses of selves um it was no surprise when i understood that that i felt so little love you know that i felt mm-hmm. so much disgust and and even and and hatred for who i was and so i was like you know this this is not oh, this loving myself is going to be a project where I also love where I come from. You know, it's not going to be enough to just write affirmations or follow the things that people were saying to do to, to feel good about myself. I realized I have to actually love all of who I am and where I come from and what that means. And so yoga, um, because part of the practice is really about vichara, self inquiry and, um, and svadhyaya which is self study so so much of yoga actually says the same thing you know that a social justice kind of lens would say which is at our core we are pure and whole and good and true and you know our fullest highest best self i mean the early yogis wouldn't have used the language of best self but we can say you know we are we are radiant and um, everything that we are meant to be, is already inside us. That is one of the tenets of yogic practice and yogic understanding. And that things illusion, maya, gets put over that essential nature. And so what we can do then with our yoga practice, part of what we're doing is removing the illusion, removing the mistaken beliefs or the mistaken practices or whatever is getting in the, way, in the way of being in connection with that true divine self, which is really, and an, you know, for many yoga practitioners, another way of getting to the divine or God, goddess, the universe, however you describe that, it's going to differ for different people. But, um, so yogic practice through practicing the ethics, through practicing the values and um, in removing that those veils and the, that in clarity leads us back to our true selves, which is of course you know at its very core love you know loving self loving interconnected with
0: all things and all beings I, I appreciate you connecting all of those dots for me and everyone listening and it feels so obvious to me how deeply intertwined your personal and familial history, yoga philosophy, your sense of self, like all of that are these like beautiful threads coming together. I'm wondering what your experience was like then, kind of entering, I don't mm. even know what to call it, the yoga establishment in the United <laughs> States or in the Western <laughs> world. <laughs> I don't like I'm like a little bit like yoga industrial complex here, right? Like yeah
1: it was so hard. I mean, it's so hard. And, and the thing is, my story is echoed by so many other Indians, South Asians, so many other folks of color, uh, unfortunately, because it's, again, not an accident, right? Culture reproduces itself. And so white, dominant, white centering culture, which was what yoga culture became, you know, in, in the West. So I, I began entering the kind of official yogic world. Uh, So I first actually studied Ayurveda. um, Well, meditation, then Ayurveda and then yoga formally, but I, I couldn't like make my way in, right? I would interview or go to studios and um, it just didn't feel like a fit. And I think it's exactly because, uh, and often it didn't feel like a fit from their side. Like they would reject me or they wouldn't want me to teach there. Or they would say things like, you know, you can't chant in Sanskrit or um, nothing too authentic, you know, things like that, where it was just like, wait, what, what is it that you're actually doing? You know, and yoga in the West has often become synonymous with asana, which is the physical practice. Mm-hmm. Postures, but yoga was never just the postures. In fact, the early yoga practitioners, you know, who are and and keep in mind they were practicing in nature, right? So under trees, by streams, uh, the foots foothills of mountains, on the outskirts of cities, right? This was a, a counter culture practice even from the start of of its. Um, these are like forest and renunciate practitioners practicing yoga. The early yogis, and they were questioning, how are these, like, society as a whole shows us that certain things bring us happiness, you know, like material wealth or family or things like this. And they were saying, but wait, we have these things, and we're not happy. So what is it that is going to lead us to joy, freedom, liberation, us individually, but also us as a community and us collectively. And so those early yogic practitioners actually didn't place a lot of emphasis on the body. The body was something to be utilized as a tool for spiritual liberation. And so it's so ironic that, you know, then you transpose yoga and, you know, thousands of years later, it comes to the West, which is a whole other story, but, um, comes to the West and and very much lands, um, begins on the East coast, but, but, you know, with, um, with yogananda takes root in hollywood and in the west and overlays with western you know image focused culture body focused culture athletic culture and that legacy it has shaped what we see yoga as in the west today Mm -hmm. and so um so when someone like myself or or anyone else who's like hey can we You know focus on meditation or talk a little bit about yoga ethics or yoga philosophy comes in it just wasn't an easy fit and so there was a lot of rejection a lot of frustration um not to mention a lot of you know over and covert racism and microaggressions and so you know for many years i just kind of worked in what i guess like not anonymity but but no one really cared what i was doing um I I would see colleagues who had started doing the same thing around the same time I had who, who were white, who became like incredibly famous yoga teachers. And I was doing similar things, um, but bringing in yoga philosophy and and Ayurvedic practice and other aspects of of what yoga is as a system. And, you know, maybe teaching three, four people in my backyard, you know, and, um, and I was okay with that. Because again, the focus I had from my teachers was, you know, just teach we want you to teach the full expanse of what yoga is and bring it to serve uh, where where you can be of service and so I just continued to do that but at a certain point I got very frustrated and I think it was around 2014 2015 I'd come back from my aunts from a puja which is like a, a sacred ceremony uh, to the fire uh, agni and that night so I was back home you know an Indian uh, often at least in my family ceremonies you know they're supposed to start at five they start at eight or nine you know it was very late it was like one or two in the morning but I got home and I just wrote like it just poured out of me this like how to decolonize our yoga practice you know our yoga practice is so colonized here in the west and so I wrote this article and uh, I had a little dinky blog at the time. And I pushed, I put it up on my blog that night, like one or two in the morning, hit publish, um, sent it out to my email list and didn't think anything of it. Posted, I think on, on I think we had Facebook then and um, woke up and had like 200 shares of this article. I was like, oh, mm. you know, and up till, I had been writing for a year, but no one had ever responded to anything <laughs> I wrote, you know, and so this like, art cry all of a sudden resonated and um, and I think it resonated because so many other people felt that there was something hollow and felt that there was something missing Um, and then you know even if they're part of the dominant culture and then for other folks of color and other Indians they were like yes this is what we're we're experiencing every day so um, so that was really the beginning of like speaking about it and it's also so funny Mm -hmm. to me that You know, ultimately, I'm a yoga practitioner, just like anyone else. But what I'm known for is speaking about cultural appropriation Um, and that, too. And I'm fine with it because it's part of, you know, part of my path. But originally, I I was just a a yoga teacher, you know, just like Mm -hmm. anyone else. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like I often talk to activists and organizers who kind of live in that liberating and conflicting space of needing to have these conversations for their own freedom and wholeness in the world, but also sometimes just wanting to be a yoga practitioner or an artist without the labels of race or gender or class or other things coming to the fore of that. And that kind of challenge of it's always both and, right? Like always wanting to talk about decolonization, but also maybe to be able to teach yoga without it being the only thing anyone wants to talk to you about. Sometimes I can imagine that space.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause that gets into tokenization, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what I love is talking about, talking about these things, but then going, going to, you know, yoga is really here as a vehicle to move through us. It didn't come to any one person. Mm-hmm. It's not religion. It came to a particular prophet. It, it's a practice that has been evolved and codified and is continuing to, you know, be developed and codified and, and understood and practiced and, and it's here for our liberation it's here for our practice and it's here for our um, exploration and embodiment and so that's the piece too i love to get to as well what does that mean you know how do we how do we get to unity um, not a unity that denies our differences or you know tries to like say we're all one too quickly but a unity that really embraces
0: all of who we, we each are yeah so I would love to hear, maybe even more about that embodiment piece and how that plays into it, and maybe in your work or in yoga philosophy more more generally. What?
1: Yeah, you know, with yoga or honestly with any practice that we're we're practicing is leaning back to to the basics, like leaning back to the indigenous roots of these practices and and honoring them and understanding how to connect to them, and so that can be much easier when it's our own culture, um, in a way, you know, sometimes it's actually harder because our cultural practices have been oppressed or suppressed or even outlawed like yoga was and Ayurveda was in India under British occupation. And so, um, and so yet we can all, we all come from somewhere. We all have points of origin. We have cultural roots. And you know, a lot of early yoga practice was very much an earth-based practice, an elemental practice, a practice of connecting to the earth, Prithvi, of connecting to Agni fire, to Surya, the sun, you know, to water, like to all these different elements. And so there's a way that, um, that getting back into kind of a natural rhythm, in my life for inviting people into that rhythm in their own lives it it helps us decolonize and unpack uh, what now is kind of white supremacist like heteropatriarchal rushing busyness you know being disconnected from ourselves and so there's so many ways to do that and and yoga isn't it's certainly not the only one um there are many ways but Mm -hmm. for me It's such an effective one, you know, because it's not a religion, uh, although it's developed and grown alongside many religions and has influenced many religions like Hinduism, Jainism, you know, Sikhism later, um, Christianity, Islam, um, and yoga has been influenced by many religions, most notably Hinduism, but it is... it is it it's always been a sort of kind of counterculture and revolutionary practice that's seeking to find freedom. So it asks that question, like, how do we find freedom? How do we embody that freedom in our own lives? And continually by inviting that self-inquiry, um, I think that's how we, we begin to embody um, our own liberation and our own practice is like, how can I be really devoted to and show up to that question of uh, my own freedom and not, and, and that question of my own freedom expands to, you know, who is the my, right? Like who is I, and, and so it's our own freedom. And then, you know, and, and it grows broader and broader and broader. And that's part of a uh, yoga practices. It, it expands beyond just the self because as we're, practicing, we begin to see the interconnectedness of all things.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we kind of started recording, this is, I think, connecting to something you mentioned about the potential for yoga to be a feminist practice, mm-hmm. specifically, and the, um, the ways in which I think yoga in the West has, at times, strived for that, and at times, very deeply failed in that endeavor. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you were thinking there and and how you see the relationship between feminism and yoga maybe both like its potential and what it actually is
1: there have always been you know women yogis and and agender yogis and um but the majority of what we see in the indian tradition are male yogis and yoga know, has often been coded as a masculine practice and you know, historically. Um, So, so there is, I want to say there's like feminist strains and feminist elements throughout even yogic history. However, the way that it sort of got um, the dominant narrative transmitted yoga is as a very male experience, a male practice. And so when all of a sudden now, you know, you think of a yoga teacher, uh, like if I just ask folks listening, like think of a yoga teacher, think of a yoga practitioner, or if I asked you to look it up online, right, Google it mm-hmm. or on Instagram, what, would, what we would mostly see would be a white, cisgendered, thin, able-bodied woman. Mm-hmm. And so there's been this total revolution, right? If we've gone from a practice that was coded male, you know, and masculine to one that is represented predominantly by women, there is a huge shift. And a huge shift too in the locus of power when we say, okay, you know, I'm going to go take a yoga class or I'm going to learn from a yoga teacher. For many people, that teacher that they envision or hold in their mind or that they go and practice with is going to be a woman, you know. Um, And so that itself is not a really interesting phenomenon and how it happened, what are all the factors that contributed to it. I'm not even sure. I think that's a great research project for somebody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But but what I will say is, you you know, there can be a way that even though the form of who is holding the position of power shifts, the structure that they're in and that they're upholding doesn't shift. And so Mm -hmm. in that way, I think, like when it's a body focused culture, when it's a body shaming or body hating culture, when it's goal oriented, right? All of those things. So even though the figureheads are female formed, there's still a lot of anti, um, I I would say like anti-feminist beliefs and anti-feminist practices that happen in yoga culture, even though it's women kind of leading in many ways, the the yoga culture in the West. And so all of those things make me see the failings of the project, right, as as a feminist project, but also the potentials. And so that's one whole piece of it, um, leaving out race. And then the other piece Mm -hmm. that's really important is it's white centering, right? Because the practice shifted from Indian men to white women, you know, as Mm -hmm. the kind of locus of power. And so what is that? how did that happen? Um, what are the problems with that? And, and that obviously continues a kind of white centering and appropriation um, to say that, and, and we see this a lot, even with the really kind of like semi-woke yoga communities that are unpacking, you know, there's no one right way to do a pose, or there's wonderful philosophically, but there's still whiteness at the center. And so that too um, for me, isn't a fully intersectionally feminist project yet, because it would need to to look at and question um, who has the power, why do they have the power, and how can we consider re um, like rematriating that power back to uh, like indigenous women, you know, Indian women or um, Indian practitioners, and doing it in a way where there's a shared uh, perspective of power and. And not just a shared perspective of power, but a shared authority in yoga in the West, and that you know we're we're pretty far away from. But I think I think there's a lot of movements out there starting it and beginning it and and moving towards that. And um, I'm hopefully that that for me is part of what I'm doing. And there's another yeah. great podcast called Yoga Is Dead that does that as well. And um, so many people speaking up and. Speaking out, who are trying to move and change these practices like accessible yoga, um, you know, to be more more available to everyone, but also taking into account what is it and who we mean when we say everyone, and who might be left out, and how do we include um, all?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. I mean, I think it's safe to say that your work is certainly, like, an important thread in those conversations, and I also found the Yoga is Dead podcast last summer when it came out, and and I remember listening to the the first episode, which is, like, like Yoga is Dead and White Women Killed It or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, very clearly engages in these not just theoretical questions, but, like, the host of that podcast, like lived experience being shut out that you've also shared, like shut out of yoga spaces, even when you are uh, from or within the culture that yoga and it is a part of. And that I can't, I can't imagine that harm and that damage, but I am inspired by the, and excited by the work of your work and other people's who are really working to name that and, and fight against it. And I love what you said about kind of rematriating and decentralizing the power in yoga. I
1: mean, it's, the thing is, right, it's not an accident. That's mm-hmm. what it's like. It's not an accident that Indians in general, like when we think of yoga celebrities, there's probably and, and not that yoga celebrity is the way to go, right? But it is one marker. We probably can't think of any Indian yoga celebrities, except perhaps deep- Chopra. And um, and if there's only one, right, that this practice for thousands of years was codified, developed, organized by Indian people, uh, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't go to a sweat lodge, you know, or, or an Indigenous First Nations, you know, Native American ceremony that wasn't um, led by an Indigenous Native person. Um, it just wouldn't make sense. And And it's the same thing here. It's like, why would we uplift and uphold and develop this practice uh, with completely erasing the people from whom it came. And I think it's, it's because it makes it easier to exploit, right? It makes it easier to take on as our own. And also because it is such an effective practice and many people do experience a lot of liberation, personal liberation and, and you know, relief of suffering and feelings of joy. And so, in a way, we kind of start to feel like it's our own, no matter who we are. And and it's mm-hmm. true that that experience is our own, but it doesn't absolve us of responsibility to the practice itself, to yoga itself, and to um, to part of its aim, which is equity and unity.
0: Mm. Uh, I think that's such a such a profound statement, and that urge, that kind of motivation that you're talking about there, of feeling something deeply and then claiming it as your own and in doing so erasing its entire history and context, that specific thing feels like such a colonial white supremacist character, like characteristic of those structures to me that turning that personal connection into immediate ownership and erasure of context is just how so much harm has been done in yoga and elsewhere. And I really appreciate you also naming that that's on purpose. It's not an accident Um, that is a tactic. Like it's not just something that happens because we have deep feelings. Like it's a tactic that has been strategically used and that has been ingrained in so many white people in in the West and in the U.S.,
1: yeah. And the way, I mean, and this is getting a little provoking, folks <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to just go there. But I don't, I'm not doing that or I don't think it's like how many, how many non-Indian yoga teachers who I've, I've talked to and, you know, people can think for themselves if you were a yoga teacher or a yoga practitioner, um, but especially if you're a yoga teacher and a, an Indian person walks into your class right? Is there a little discomfort? Is there a little bit of wanting their approval of wanting to not do it the wrong, you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. And so if we're feeling that, if someone's feeling that, then it's like, oh, there's something there. There's something not quite right. You know, if I'm wanting their approval, I'm wanting not to offend. Mm
0: -hmm. I know
1: there's something a little bit, um, a little bit unsettled here. And and that Mm -hmm. is because maybe there needs to be some actual unsettling, you know, yeah. and moving moving uh, out and making space and creating space for um, for those voices and those those folks who haven't had the ability to speak up and be
0: seen. Yeah, I, th- I appreciate you kind of sharing that. And um, and I have been paying attention. I mean, I'm not, I, I guess people don't listening, listening may not know this, but I am not a yoga teacher by any <laughs> means. I have been to occasional yoga classes in my life. I wouldn't even really call myself that. Practitioner in any um, consistent way, but I have started seeing more and more white women who have been yoga teachers kind of stepping back and stepping aside and writing about the ways in which their relationship to yoga, when they really started to reckon with the colonial realities of their whiteness and yoga led them to totally change how they practice or to in many cases stop teaching in order to be a student of it again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think there's necessarily just one answer to what people should do, but I have found that really striking and I'm starting to see it more. I don't know if you are.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I see too, you know, and I think this is important for, for folks to consider wherever we are. Right. It's like, one of the things we can do is like decolonize our our feed right of where Mm -hmm. we're learning we're learning from and and sometimes for us that can be like oh i realized i was learning everything from men and and actually i want to learn from women too or i want to learn not just from you know a white experts in this particular field but i want to learn from a, a broad range of experts with many different experiences and i think that can be a first way in is to look for like who are we calling the authority? You know, who is the the measuring stick of truth? Is it is it an indigenous measuring stick, or is it a measuring stick? And that um, that perspective we can bring to any mode of learning or any particular kind of learning that we're doing um, yoga as well. And we can also collaborate, right? We can, if we are practitioners or you know, quote unquote experts in a certain field. Like just a concrete example, I ran yoga teacher trainings and I have for about a decade is I'm not the only teacher on the teacher training, you know, and, and so there's, you know, black yoga teachers who come in and teach there's Latinx yoga teachers, there's trans yoga teachers, there's, you know, other South Asian yoga teachers. And all of that for me is a really important part of me holding that role of quote-unquote expert is that I'm not the only expert and what I'm also trying to share with the students is they're the experts too right we're all involved in this learning together Uh, and and it's important to have a not a tokenized learning team but a really truly representative and diverse learning team um, or teaching team and then also um, that that no one has a monopoly on truth, right? We get to mm-hmm. all explore. I I can give people tools and critical thinking, and share the tools and knowledge that my teachers have shared with me. But um, but that each of us has a right and a responsibility to continue our our own learning, and it can be so much so much fun and such a um, an empowering journey. Then,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I um, as someone who like has taught in a college setting and thought a lot about the structure of teaching and learning. (laughs) Um, I always tell my students that I hope to learn as much from them as they do from me. And I'm always working to flatten that hierarchy and make it more horizontal so that Mm -hmm. knowledge is shared through a network instead of top down. I think that Mm -hmm. that can be such a powerful shift I mean, I feel like we could talk for a really long time (laughs) about all of these things, but I think um, as we're we're probably about time to wrap up and I would love to hear about the new book that you have coming out. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the book and where they can find it and why of course they want to buy it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. So I wrote all of what we've been talking about, you know, into, into a journey, into a workbook, uh, it began as a workbook an exploration of how we can honor yoga's roots and by doing so more deeply show up courageously in our own lives you know whether we're practicing yoga or doing anything else so it's a book about the intersection of yoga as a spiritual practice and social justice and how we can engage more fully in social justice through the path of the teachings of yoga and it, it, it's been quite a journey to write. Um, I, I would say it's like a, a book to come back to, you know, one to pick up. Uh, each chapter has, it's broken up into four sections. So the dealing with the problem of separation and all of the causes of separation, reflection on where our kind of social location and our role is in that, reconnection through action, what are the things we can act, do, you know, to make a difference and, and to, you know, try to try to do something to address these problems, and then finally liberation. How can we work for our own personal and also social um, and liberation for all beings? And using the tools of yoga and social justice. And each section has reflection questions, things to um, and action steps, things to to do and bring alive, including you know even like form letters or letters you can take and then share with um with like if you see a workshop or an event that's that's not very representative where you can you know take it and then write or places to reparations organizations so it's it's aiming to be both very um reflective and uh process and even itself kind of a, a spiritual journey while also being very concrete and actionable and i think i i'm managed to strike that, that balance, um, because that's kind of who I am, is I I work in both and walk in both worlds all the time. And so I'm excited for it, you know, and, and to share and to hopefully do some, just see where it goes, you know, and, and invite people in to share with me too how they're applying the tools that they um, get from it so the, the place you can find it is on my website which is Susanna Barkataki so my name slash book and you can also download you can download a free chapter or
0: buy the book there Awesome, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes um, and if folks want to interact engage with you in other ways where can they find you online or I guess there's not really in-person finding anyone lately but (laughs) (laughs) Um, where can they find you
1: (laughs) yeah so I do a lot of I like to call what I do on Instagram my instigations I do a lot of instigating and asking provoking questions and um, giving you know resources like I recently did one around like six things to look for if you're um looking for a decolonized yoga teacher training or is it possible to run a decolonized yoga retreat you know those types of questions and provocations and um so on instagram which is just my name at instagram
0: yeah i was looking through that this morning and i'm just like clicking on everything there's so much to you're putting out so much amazing content and there's so much to learn i i'm
1: just just excited to know you and also to know the folks who are listening to this podcast who are wanting this too and working for this too. So I'm, I'm feeling grateful and heartened and even in a in challenging times that we're all in, I think feeling that sense of connection. Um, so thank you.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I feel the same way. And so appreciate you. So are t- like naming that. So, so, compellingly and and sweetly at the same time I really really appreciate that and I'm just so glad to have you as part of the I think of it as like the 50 feminist states family with all these amazing organizers and activists and artists that are all working for justice and liberation across the U.S. and and many globally as well and it's such a joy to have you in the fold so thank you so much for your time this has been wonderful thank you 50 50, Fifty feminist day. Fifty
1: feminist day.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50 podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, Wild Ones, we'll see you on the road.